All right, this is the hard session. Everybody's got a full stomach. And I'm speaking with a southern drawl. I tell you. I just have to warn you. In the Bible, there's a guy who went to sleep during a sermon, you know. But the one who was preaching was the Apostle Paul. He had apostolic powers. I don't got any of those. Okay? So you fall down and hurt yourself. You go to sleep. I'll pray for you. No, and we'll notify your next of kin. But I don't have any ability to raise anybody from the dead. So, you know, you're warned. That's the disclaimer right at the beginning. Not to mention the blessing you missed from the word. My life touched yours for a very brief space. And oh, what did you see? A hurried, a worried, and anxious face? Or the beauty of Jesus in me? Was I steeped so deep in the ways of the world that you couldn't detect one thing that would set me apart and show that my heart belonged to the heavenly king? Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus. And that's what we want to look at this afternoon. Let's read the passage first. We'll have a word of prayer and get right into it. Philippians 2, 1 to 11. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. And we confess it willingly, our Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ is Lord. May you have all the honor and the glory. And as we look into this passage, we pray that you will help us to come away with a new understanding of its meaning, a fresh understanding of its meaning, how it applies to us, that the mind of Christ might be in us, and that beyond whatever the theological considerations might be, we would dwell on the practical, on what we are being exhorted to do here. And that we might think of others the way Christ thought of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Down 
is up. Whoever would be great in the kingdom of God, what did the Lord Jesus say? Let him be the servant of all. And he practiced what he preached, the servant. People are always trying to move up through the structure, through the hierarchy. The Lord Jesus said, if you want to move up in the kingdom of God, the way to do that is to go down. There's plenty of room at the bottom for serving. And our Lord did that. The Apostle Paul did that. Timothy did that. Epaphroditus did that. So in this chapter, we're going to get four examples of sacrificial service and of esteeming, thinking about valuing other people as more important than ourselves. The book of Philippians is not about having a good self-image and all those other hyphenated sins. Self-importance, self-love, self-image, self-realization. Those are all the hyphenated sins, and you can add a few more to them. This is not about that. This is about others, 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 others. And the first example that he gives us, and that's where we're going to dwell now, is the example of Christ. And then later, the last half of the chapter, we'll come to that. We have the three other examples of the Apostle Paul. And what you could actually add, uh, as he talks about himself, he's talking about what the Philippian believers are doing. Then you have Timothy, and then you have Epaphroditus. And those are all given to us in this chapter to show us examples of what he's talking about here in the first part, what Christ did. Down is up. Maybe... Probably there was some undercurrent of contention, of strife among the Philippian believers. And it might have been brought on simply by the pressure that they were living under. Because life in Philippi, when there was persecution, was like living in a pressure cooker. And you know, sometimes under pressure, things get distorted. They're not their normal size or shape. And so you have this here where he says, uh, don't do anything through strife or vainglory, verse 3. When you come to chapter 4, he says, uh, I beseech Yodius and Syntyche that they be of the same mind. And so there are these um, hints, suggestions that there were some conflicts. And that's good for us to know. Because there's not a church anywhere on the face of the earth that's perfect. You'll never find a perfect church. And if you do find one, please don't go in it. You'll ruin it. <laughs> There are no perfect churches. The Philippians had their problems. The Thessalonians had their problems. Every church has problems. The difference between New Testament churches, biblical churches, and other churches is how they work through the problems. That's where the difference is. So, we have this undercurrent here. And he's going to teach them, first of all, he's going to teach them the greatest example of all. Now, listen, let me be very clear about this. Jesus Christ did not come to the world to be an example. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, the Apostle Paul said. That's why he came. Okay. That does not mean he's not an example. And that doesn't mean that you can't include his example. But the example is for the believers. We don't preach Christ the example to people who don't know him as their Lord and Savior. We preach Christ the Savior and Lord to them. And to the believers, to those of us who are believers, we say, let this mind be in you. But you hear me now. If you haven't ever accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, his mind ain't in you and it ain't going to be there. 
You can't have it until you're a member of the family. you just like somebody on the street who's looking in the window and, and enjoying what they see in the display window. But you're not on the inside. You can't have the mind of Christ unless you have the Spirit of Christ living in you. And the Scriptures say very clearly in Romans that if any man has not the Spirit of Christ, anyone has not the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. See, So every believer, every true believer, every born-again believer in the Lord Jesus has the Spirit of Christ dwelling in him. We don't pray to receive the Spirit. We receive the Spirit, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit, and we receive the Holy Spirit of God. We're sealed with Him. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, Having believed, you received the Holy Spirit. That's the normal order of things in Christianity. And so when he's talking to them and he says, Let this mind be in you, we don't go out and tell people, Well, now, the way we need to fix the world is for everybody in California... And all these other places, we're in California, so we're going to focus on that. To just think more like Jesus. Wear that little, what did it say, W? That's it. And everybody wear that. Well. First of all, you've got to get saved. Don't get the card in front of the horse. You can, you can admire philosophically Jesus like Gandhi did. And other people have done that. You can quote certain of his teachings that uh, you happen to agree with, like the, like the communists did, about uh, having all things in common and things like that. You can go to it like people go to a cafeteria, you know, where you get a tray and you go along and say, I don't want any of that, I want this, and you load up your tray with it and you leave everything that you don't want. But a person who accepts Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior does it because, first of all, he knows his own life is spiritually bankrupt. He's a sinner. He sins in thought and word and deed. He sins by omission. And the price to pay for all of those sins, for being that sinful person, is death. The wages of sin is death. And he comes to Christ, first of all, not looking for a good example to follow, but looking for someone to, like we say in the Old South, to get his fat out of the fire. To save him. That's what he wants. I need to be rescued first. Now, Paul is talking. He's writing to a, a congregation, a church of believers in Jesus Christ. And it's to them, not to the world, it's to them. And it's to us, those of us who belong to him, that he says, let this mind be in you. The Spirit of God is in us. But the Spirit of God wants to teach us to think like Jesus thought. To think his thoughts after him. To evaluate, to value, and to esteem other people. To think about other people the way the Lord thinks about us. And the way he thinks about them. And this is the, the remedy and the solution for conflict. And so the first four verses here before he begins to talk to us about the Lord, he calls them to unity and to humility. But the answer to this call can't come simply and isn't found simply looking at verses 1 to 4. The call in verses 1 to 4 is the introduction to the remedy. To the, the advice that he's giving us finds its solution, its fulfillment in the following verses. He says, let, uh, 
Let nothing be done uh, through strife and vainglory. Okay. But how do I do that? I don't just make a New Year's resolution. I learn to think like Jesus. And so he's going to come to that. First of all, then, let's go back to verse 1. We have the basis of this unity and humility. And here he states four facts that are true of believers. When he says if, uh, if in Greek has various ways of being translated. One is the if as uh, in possibility. If this happens, if I win the lottery, I'll be a rich man. But there's another way to translate the word if, and that's to use the word since. And in that case, you would say, since I won the lottery, I am a rich man. But that word, and that's the sense of it here, when he say, he's, he's really saying, since there is consolation in Christ, and since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, and since there is, a, since there is or there are affection and mercy, we have these things. As believers, we have them. We have encouragement or consolation in Christ. How? We're united to him. We belong to him. Whatever else happens, this we have. We belong to Christ. That can't be taken away from us. So we're not trying to work toward unity in order that God might accept us. We are accepted in the beloved. God loves us and accepts us because we have trusted in his son. We belong to him. And that ought to give us encouragement. The comfort of love. He loves us. The Holy Spirit is in us. Fellowship of the Spirit. And because of those things, believers and true believers have the capacity, the ability to love and to treat one another with kindness. God has given it to us. This is not detente. This is not uh, tolerance and respect uh, in the way the world teaches it. This is Christian love. Christian love is different. Believers have the capacity to love. In chapter 1 and verse 8, what did Paul say? God is my record how greatly I, what does he say? Long for you. We talked about that word in the, what does it say in your version? In the New King James? New King James Version. How greatly I long for you with all the affection of Jesus Christ. All the affection. What does it say in the New American Standard? With the affection. Okay, now that word I told you yesterday comes from that, well, the old King James translates it, the bowels. And that's the idea. We talked about how funny it sounds to call a little child a golden liver. That's the way they talk about them because that was uh, the most... Precious part. In fact, even in the in English in the old days, people used to say, "How's your liver?" You probably never heard anybody say that, but they used to say it sometimes. "How's your liver?" Sweetheart, you're in my intestines. <laughs> you're in my innards, my innermost parts, and that's what he means. And this is what he's talking about here. He's saying, "Look, in chapter one, verse eight, he says, I love you this way.'" It's not a put on your face, smile when you come to a meeting. Hello, brother. You know, plastic, false as a $3 bill. It's not that. The Bible says, let love be without hypocrisy. It means without a mask, no play acting. 
Paul loved them this way. Deep inside, he loved them with all of his being. And he's saying to them here in this chapter, the comfort of love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And in the, the old King James, it uses that same word here. It says bowels and mercies because the bowels were where the affections came from. And that's what he's saying. If you have this deep, strong affection, and we do have it. The Lord wants us to express it. Mercy and love toward the brethren, not vengeful and severe with others. And these things are all made possible because we belong to Christ, because we have him in us. And it makes it possible for us to work together and to help one another. And that's the way it should be in the family. So he's saying this is the basis. These are the things we have. We have consolation in Christ. We have the comfort of love. We have the fellowship of the Spirit. And we have, you can say as a result of that, affection and mercy in our hearts. God has given us the capacity to be affectionate and merciful with one another. Nobody can say, I can't do it. I'm just not that type. Listen, brother, when you got saved, you became that type. (laughs) Because it doesn't depend on genetics and your family and your socioeconomic situation or anything else. It's a work of God in us. He gives us the capacity to love people. Look at that Philippian jailer. What did he do? How quick did he get affection and mercy? No sooner did he get saved and he took Paul and what did he do? Washed his stripes, Paul and Silas. And he set food before him. And he says he rejoiced with all his household having believed God. He didn't have to go to any seminars or listen to any tapes. He got it right away. The Holy Spirit gave him that capacity to love and to care for people that before he had thrown in, by, probably by the scruff of their neck, thrown them into the jail and with all the prejudice, the hatred, or the professional pride, or whatever he felt, who knows. He threw them in there, he fixed their feet fast in the stocks, and there they were going to stay. Look at what a change. So when Paul says this in verse 1, he's not talking theory, and he's talking something that they have already seen in Philippi. They know what it means to be transformed and to find a, a newfound love and affection and a tendency toward mercy and kindness to one another. He says, look, we have all these things. We have them all, so let's don't throw them away. Let's use them for what God intended them to be used for. The practice of this unity and humility. Verses 2 to 4. This is still all part of the call. The base is these four things that we have in verse 1. But then comes the practice of it. Since we have these things, fulfill my joy, he says. And here he's linking his joy to their behavior. Paul didn't say, oh, well, what if you do? That's your problem. We're not islands. We're part of a body. And it's a good thing to learn right away that everything you do affects everybody else in the body. If I get sick, if I get a cold, I get a sore throat, I get a fever, my whole body's affected. The whole body's affected. So what do you bring to the body? What do you bring to the body? He says, fulfill my joy. Make me happy. Give me a reason to rejoice. And he's looking for that. 
And you know your behavior, my behavior, our behavior affects other believers. It either leads them to rejoice, to be happy, to be grateful. Or you have the opposite case. And let's look at it for just a moment in Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 17. Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls as those who must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with, for that is unprofitable for, not for them, for you. He's saying to them, now you... uh, you be, you want to have good shepherds, but you be good sheep, he says. Those who are, are, have the rule over you, those who are governing, those who are watching for your souls, the overseers, and we said yesterday, the bishops, the elders, the pastors, those, that's all the same men. Those are just three different facets of the same job. He's saying those who have the rule over you, and it's that way. Spiritually speaking, they're watching for your souls. He says, they have to give account. One day they'll give account. Every one of us is going to give account of himself before God. Okay, First of all that, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in in his flesh, in the flesh. Every one of us is going to be reviewed personally at the judgment seat of Christ. But that's another subject. I'm not going into it now. Sorry, Adel. You have to wait. We got that on the back burner for later, for another time. See, that way I'm sure I'll get invited back. Everybody's going to give account of himself. But in addition to that, those who have the responsibility of the spiritual oversight and the care of churches, congregations, the elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, that group of men, they're going to give account for their ministry and they're taking care of the church. And he says, now, there's two ways they can do it. One is with joy and the other is with grief or with sadness. Say, I did the job. It was a joy. They were a joy. You read the word, we studied the word, and when they saw it in the word, they did it. Or you say, boy, I'll tell you, it was like pulling wisdom teeth. You had to back him into the corner, and you tried to go visit them, and they wouldn't answer the door. And uh, they tried to make an appointment, and they're always too busy. And you talk, and instead of talking about them, they start citing all the things that are wrong and the criticisms of the church. And you show it to them in the word, and they say, that's your opinion. And on and on and on. And Moses said to the Lord about the children of Israel, he says, I can't do it anymore. So there are some times, and may the Lord forgive us for the times we have caused those who are our shepherds to feel grief. We made, we made their job tough for them instead of easy because you see and this is another subject we don't have time to get into right now if they have to teach if God calls them to feed the flock of God guess what the flock of God is supposed to do they're supposed to be receptive to the feeding 
if they're called to keep watch over their souls as those who must give account, guess what we're supposed to do? We ain't supposed to play hide and seek. We're supposed to be open and transparent. We're supposed to let them know what things are really like. And we could go on and on, and you should do that. You go through the New Testament and read that list in different texts where God tells what the elders should do. And then on every one of those, you take the, uh, the flip side of it and you say, if he's supposed to do this, then what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to let him. I'm supposed to be responsive. I'm supposed to make it easy. I'm not supposed to make his job tough. Paul says, fulfill my joy. So not with grief. He doesn't want grief when he thinks about the Philippians. And up until now, I don't think he's had any. He says, I remember you always in every prayer of mine, verse chapter 1, verse 4, making requests with joy. He's had this and he doesn't want to lose it. He sees the possibility, human nature being what it is. He says, now, brothers, don't take a wrong turn. What did, what did Joseph tell his brothers when they came to Egypt and they were going back? What did he tell them when they went back? To get his father and come back, he said, don't fight, don't fall out, don't argue along the way. You know, that's what the Lord has to say to us. He got us off to a good start. And he says, now, you're going on your walk in the Christian life. Don't, don't fight with each other on the way to the kingdom. Fulfill my joy, he says. But look how he says to do it. Being like-minded. I'm sorry, but I don't subscribe to the version of Christianity that says in the church uh, there's room for a huge variety of opinions and lifestyles, alternate, acceptable lifestyles, and all these things you hear people saying. It's not in here. In chapter 1 and verse 27, he said, That I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, working together, For the faith of the gospel. And in chapter 2 and verse 2 he says, Having the same love being of one accord of one mind. Okay, so who gets to decide what that one mind is? God does. It's right here. It ain't on television or in the movies. It's right here. And a lot of the problems that Christianity has today are because people consult this a little and everything else a lot. And because we live in a world that increasingly emphasizes the rights of the individual and the freedom of the individual. And they're individuals, individuals, individuals. And everybody's independent and disassociated from everybody else. And we don't understand that God has put us in a body. He's made us members of a body and he wants us to fellowship and work together in his kingdom. And he's given us a book that's supposed to govern our minds and govern our hearts. Look at Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. How does he say it there? Uh, verses 1 and 2 actually. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He said that to all the Romans. Every Roman believer was supposed to prove by his life what the perfect will of God was. We're too full of our own wills. 
That's the problem. We want to know the will of God. Maybe, maybe if we're thinking about getting married or some big job change, you know, or if I should move here or there and we stop and ask the Lord, what do you want me to do? But we kind of reserve it for those things. What about every day? Yeah, critical situation. What about every day? What about how much can the will of God enter into normal routine everyday activities like, for example, picking a piece of fruit off a tree and taking a bite of it? You know what I'm saying? The scripture says, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, let all be done to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. And he starts with the ordinary, routine, everyday things like eating and drinking. And if he starts there, then that includes everything, brother. That's what God's word says. So the transforming of our mind. We're supposed to be transformed. Our mind is supposed to be renewed by the scripture. You see, he says, having one, uh, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Where do we get that mind? We get it out of this book. And what is that one mind? Let this mind be in you which also is in Christ Jesus. Verse 5. All you have to do is keep reading and the pieces start falling into place. What the Lord expects of us. The modern Christianity and Christendom have strayed from the apostolic teaching. Today we live like the days of the book of Judges. When there was no king in Israel and every man did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the problem that plagues the church today. In verse 3, he gives them a prohibition. Let nothing, it's an absolute prohibition. This is an absolute nothing. Let nothing be done through strife and vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, I believe the New King James says. What is selfish ambition? You know what electioneering is? Politicking? Creating a, a party or a group in your favor or in favor of whatever that idea you're pushing is? Self-promoting? Position-seeking? I have a, let me see if I can find this in the back. Ah, yes, here it is. See, that's why I can't switch. I don't have all these stories in there yet. A bed, a basket, or a candle. I think I've read this to some of you before. There are only three ways in which anyone can look at life. It is either a bed, a basket, or a candle. Those who look at life as a bed are the ones who look for an easy way through it, who expect to reach the skies of achievement on flowery beds of ease who think the world owes them a living. Those who look at life as a basket are the ones who live only for what they can get out of life. They are the folk who are always asking, what's in it for me? They are the bargain hunters. They will do a favor for you if they think there will be a chance to get the favor returned. They will work in the church or the Sunday school provided they can have a place that will give them prominence. They wish only to serve themselves. The ones who look at life as a candle are the ones who are giving themselves all the time. A candle cannot give light without using itself up. You never saw a candle that could burn and not be consumed. It has to sacrifice in order to give light. 
A bed. Take it easy. A basket. What benefit do I get out of it? Or a candle. Sacrifice in order to give to others. You see, Paul says nothing through selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit, an elevated self-opinion. Vain glory is the old King James word. And I like that. Vain glory, empty glory, useless glory. There's so much of that in the world. And Jeremiah, John, uh, John, the prophet has to say to the people, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom or the mighty man in his might. Why? He says, he that glories, let him glory in this, that he knows and understands me. All other kind of glory is vain. In the world they live, in the political world, in the, in the sports world, even in the academic world, there's so much of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. But it's all about the person who's triumphing or the team that's triumphing or the party that's triumphing. And it's all about their glory and they're constantly glorifying men and making men into be, uh, making people admire them as achievers and of people with special talents and abilities. And it's all about people. And that's what people remember. Their minds are full of the names of people. It's vain and empty glory. A hundred years from now won't mean anything. People can't even remember who the achievers were a hundred years ago. And you probably only have to go back 50. Rare is the case of people who remember those names. But there's somebody's name that the whole world remembers to this day. Jesus Christ. Nothing through strife or vain glory. Don't serve to promote your own interest, to be seen or appreciated. Paul said, I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, even though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. In 2 Corinthians 12, he said that. That's the law of diminishing returns. Even though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. Even though I get a diminishing return, he said, I'll do it gladly. For the privilege of serving and of loving you. How could he say that if he didn't esteem them more importantly than himself? If he didn't esteem them, if he didn't think of them, if he didn't value them more than he valued himself. Let each esteem others, he says, better. Now, it's not a question, and, and this is where we get sidetracked. It's not a question of, but is he really better than me? Or am I better than him? That ain't it. That's not, that's not where this is going. This is talking about how you think about that person. If you think he's worth more, if you value him more, if you get outside of yourself and you think that life is not for me, but it's for me to help him. I want to help him. I want to help my brothers. I want to serve my brothers. What God could do. In our times, with a church full of people who are always thinking about serving others, and nobody was jockeying for position for himself, and nobody was worried about himself, and if other people were thinking about me, and caring about me, and loving me, if I'm just so busy, I tell you, if you give it, you'll get it. Amen. You will. You will. He says, don't let every man, or let not every man, let each of you look not on his own things, but on the interests of others. You see, it's a question of how you think about them. Esteem them. It means what value do you assign to them? 
Well, I'm going to jump ahead of myself and tell you when you come down to these next verses. And that's why he gives the example of Christ. What value did Christ put on us? What value did God the Father put on us? He loved us when we were his enemies. He didn't make us earn his love. And brother, if he made us learn, uh, uh, earn his love, we'd still be trying. And, and we wouldn't be anywhere yet. We wouldn't have moved a centimeter yet. You can't earn that. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. This is how God showed his love to us. So he's coming to that, you see. The Lord Jesus is doing these things. The Lord Jesus never did anything through vain glory. He never did anything through selfish ambition or conceit. He said, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. He said, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And he gave it all. Mark 10, 45. So we don't look on our own things. You say, hey, i got to look out for number one. That's not what the Bible says. You didn't learn that in the Bible. You got that from the world. You got that from the financial world. You got that from the sports world. You got that from the political world. You just got it from the world somewhere. If you have to look out for number one, let's get it clear right from the beginning here. Who is number one? Look out for him. For him. Well, what if... Well, what if I lose everything? We'll come to that in chapter 3. I count it all loss and rubbish for the excellency of the knowledge of him. That's a profit and loss statement for you. So he says, basically in verse 4, die to self. Die to self. There was a... Well, I'm, I pause because I said, I don't know if I want to give this illustration, but I'm going to give it. I don't want you to misinterpret it and think that I'm trying to give an indirect hint to anybody here because I don't mean that, and that's why I paused, okay? All right, but, that's, but, it does have, but I was thinking, it doesn't apply to anybody here, but there's always some sensitive soul that will say, oh, maybe he's talking about me, you know, but I wasn't. Well, there was a case, uh, a preacher that I know, and every time he went to a certain church to preach, a certain woman would come up, as soon as he was done, and stand beside him and ask him questions and talk to him and monopolize him, and he never got to talk to anybody else in that church. Never. Every time he went there, he told me this personally. And uh, finally, uh, she came. he didn't know what to do with her. He tried, and but he couldn't get free from her. And she just monopolized him completely. So finally, one Sunday, he said to her, uh, Sister, have you ever died and she said, uh, I died when Christ died on the cross because I'm identified with him. I died with him and I buried with him and raised with him. And she started off on this theological dissertation on that. And he said, okay, now go out and die to yourself. Run along. Run along. Go die to yourself. To self-importance. To always having people in a little group around you praying for you, talking about you, ministering to you, being the center of attention. If you can't be at the top of the heap, you can be at the bottom of the heap. But the point is, in either of the two places, you're getting everybody's attention. Go die to yourself. 
He said she turned around and left offended and never spoke to him again. He said, what can I do? She needed to hear it. Die to self. Die to self. Esteem others better. Look every man on the interests of others. Is that what the Lord Jesus did when he came to this earth? If he hadn't been doing that, brother, he would have stayed in heaven. He didn't come down here because he needed to. He came down here because we needed him to. This is the great missionary spirit. And you're going to pardon me because I'm a missionary. I can't avoid this. This is the great missionary spirit. Instead of living in my, my life in comfort and ease, I think about all these people who need to hear the gospel. Who's going to give it to them? How are they going to believe if they don't have a preacher? And how will someone preach to them unless he is sent? The gospel has to be preached. We have the message. What are we going to do? Close it up inside of us and let it die in there while we live our comfortable Western lives, well entertained and in comfort and luxury? Do we care about others? Let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. He left all the comforts and the glories of heaven and he came to this earth. And he was born in a stable. A stable. One time when I was preaching in Spain on one of my early visits, back in 83, when I went to visit the, uh, was with a group of young people who were evangelizing a province there, and we were staying in an old farmhouse that someone owned that didn't live there anymore. And uh, they let us stay in it, and we just camped out, sleeping bags and all that. Some had tents and we, ate, we used a stable area for the meetings. And I remember walking in the first day, and it's a nasty old stable area, and some people kept goats there still, and they were, but they were out for this time that we were there. So it smelled, of course, and the goats had left their deposit, and uh, they're cleaning up the, the stable and, uh, and the, what do you call it, the manger where they put all the straw. And I remember standing there looking at it, and flies buzzing all around and hot, and I was thinking, I'm going to preach in here. I was living in the Bay Area at that time, over in San Leandro. So I went from San Leandro to a smelly stable full of flies in in an abandoned farmhouse out in the countryside in Spain, and I was thinking, I remember standing there for a second and thinking, brother. That was my initial reaction. When I got and immediately the Lord spoke to me. Now, when I say the Lord spoke to me, I don't mean I don't see visions, and, and I don't hear voices come out of the ceiling, and I don't need to go be committed somewhere. But I mean, the Lord speaks to you sometimes. He puts a thought in your mind. It's there, and, and this thought came to me instantly. I was born in the stable. The Lord was born in the stable. And I looked at it and I said, "Here I am complaining about having to preach in one." No, 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 no. If the wind blows, it's air conditioned. <laughs> That's right. That's right. This is what the Lord did. He left the comforts of heaven. And you know what? There are people, and there might be some here, in churches in America who will never reach anybody else in the world because they're afraid to lose their comforts. I know I'm prejudiced because I'm a missionary. Go ahead and say it. You just mark it off and tune me out if you want to. But one day you're going to hear this again from somebody else. From the one who left heaven, who made himself of no reputation, who took the form of a servant, who was made in the likeness of man. 
And who became obedient to death and even the death of the cross. And what are you going to do when you face him? And you say you couldn't give up your 42-inch plasma screen TV and your air conditioning and your sofa and your beautiful house and your gardens and your sports club and your nice car and you had to walk. You ever lived for years without a car? I know missionaries that have had to do it. You're talking to one of them. Thank the Lord I have one now, but I know others who didn't have one. And people who walk from villages to other villages just to hear the gospel. We talked about those yesterday. The world is full of needs, but Americans are too concerned with their own comforts to care. We don't esteem other people better. And we sit in our comfortable churches and we fight and quarrel with each other about what the setting is on the air conditioner or the heater or whether the seats are comfortable or whether there's enough care in the nursery or this or who knows what it is. And I wonder sometimes at the patience of God with us after he gave us such an example as the gift of his son. And brothers, when he moves to the presentation of the example of Christ here in these verses from 5 to 11, He's trying to teach us how to be. And you just be careful because if you let Christ's mind be in you, you might end up being a missionary. I'll take it a step further because I'm feeling real cocky right now. (laughs) You will be a missionary. You will be one because missionaries don't have to have passports, do they? Your neighborhood needs a missionary. The place you work needs a missionary. This community needs a missionary. This is one of the most luxurious communities, uh, uh, affluent, thank you, communities. And it's one of the most lost communities on the face of the earth. Revelation, I think about this when you read about the church in Laodicea, or however you say that word in English. Y'all go ahead and laugh when I say I'm wrong. Because... You say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Or like they say in the South, buck naked. Because you can be naked, see, with your socks on. But when you're buck naked, you ain't got nothing. (laughs) He says, nothing. You don't know. See, that's the problem. You don't know. You don't see yourself the way God sees you. You say, I'm this way. But God says you're the complete opposite. It's not that you're off a little bit in a few points. It's complete, a complete and distinct and opposing view of things. If this is the way people are, they live around here, they, they think they're rich and in comfort and have need of nothing, except maybe whoever has enough money, of course. So they can buy a few more things. If that's the way people are, just think how great their need is. I know he's talking about a church there. But there's an application here for modern society, isn't there? Certainly in the West. You see, the Lord Jesus came. He came to save our souls. He came to benefit us. He came to seek us and to save us. And the whole point of this passage is this is not a theological dissertation on the nature of Christ. The whole point of this passage is to teach us to think like Him. If you could just get it. If you just let the mind in, the mind of Christ, 
You see, he says, let it be in you. You know what I'm trying to say? You have to let it. You have to give in. You have to let it. You have to receive it. You have to be open to it. You have to say, okay, Lord, enough of my mind. Enough. Of, and it doesn't mean we're becoming mindless. We're not talking about TM and yoga and these kind of things. We're talking about adopting a Christ-like way of thinking and valuing and reasoning and prioritizing. A Christ-like way of treating other people. He says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ Jesus. Love and humility are the only way to secure spiritual unity. And Christ shows us that. Look at his voluntary humiliation in verses 6 to 8. Being in the form of God, it says. That's his identity. That's who he is. Not an imitator of God, the form of God. I and the Father are one. Jesus said in John 10.30. He's prayed in John 17. He said, Father, glorify me with thee, with the glory I had with thee before the world was. Before the world was, the Father and the Son were the Trinity. But he's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But he's talking about the Father and the Son here. That the glory that I had with you before the world began, he says. In the form of God. He didn't think it was robbery or, another way of translating that, a thing to be grasped. To be equal with God. It wasn't strange for him to be equal with God. It wasn't unrighteous. It wasn't robbery. He wasn't taking something that didn't belong to him. But it also, the other side of that, and the other possible meaning of it is, and I would say, we, we talk about uh, keeping a translation ambiguous. It means if it can mean two things, maybe it does mean both. Instead of choosing one or the other, discarding one and choosing the other, say, okay, why not both? And there is that possible ambiguity here. It wasn't something to be grasped. See, he didn't have to stay there. He wasn't looking for his own comfort and his own glory. He was thinking about us. And way back in the book of Isaiah, when the Lord called Isaiah, he said, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? In Isaiah chapter 6, and and Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. How about it? Jesus said that. In a different sense. In a much greater sense, when he came to this world, he came because he said to the Father, Here am I. Send me. He was the only one who could come. God become man, adding humanity to divinity. He was the only one who could come. God couldn't send an angel. He couldn't make a kind of a calf or other animal that could be sacrificed. It had to be divinity and humanity together. A Jesus who is not God cannot die for your sins. And a God who doesn't become a man can't be sacrificed for your sins. God and man together in one. And it says 
He came. He made himself, and here's the word in verse 7. He made himself of no reputation, or some versions say he emptied himself. Now, this is where they begin to make a mistake, and they say well-intentioned all kinds of things, like he left his glory in heaven. We have this in our hymns sometimes. He left his glory. The Bible never says he left his glory. They say he became less than God. Uh, He didn't use any of the divine attributes. Where do you get that? Who was it that told Peter, go down to the sea and cast in a hook and and the first fish that you catch, pull it up and in his mouth you'll find a coin enough to pay for your taxes and mine. Uh huh. He didn't use any omniscience to do that. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. It's a good thing he said Lazarus. Because if he just said come forth, everybody in all the graves would have got out and come out right then. He called him by name. Lazarus, come forth. The people who think this way, their thinking is confused. Their thinking is not um, synced with the scripture. The scripture never says he became less than God. It says he added humanity to his divinity. He made himself of no reputation. They didn't know who he was. When he walked down the streets of Nazareth, he looked just like any other Jewish man of that time. But inside of that body that looked apparently only human, dwelled the God of the universe. He made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself. You see, none of this was forced on him. He did it voluntarily. He made himself that way. He took upon himself The form of a servant, a real servant, not a disguise. He wasn't going to a party disguised as a servant or wearing a costume. He was a real servant and he served. And made in the likeness of men. It's translated bond servant, but that's the idea. Who lives to do the will of his master. Yeah. Well, it goes even lower, probably, than the way we think of it. He gave up his environment of glory, but not his glory. It's the prince who's disguised as a pauper, if you want. Though he was rich, Second Corinthians 8 9 says, Though he was rich, he became poor, that you through his poverty might be made rich. How does he make us rich? He's not talking about bank accounts. He's talking about spiritual riches and blessings. We become a part of the family with all the blessings of God. We've been blessed, Ephesians 1, 3 says, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. You don't get any richer than that. All the others you're going to leave behind. When a person dies, they say, how much did he leave behind? The answer is everything. He left all of it. He took the form of a bond servant. He came to do the Father's will. Whose will did you come to do? Yeah, remember, three fingers pointing back at me. But we're having a conversation, an extended conversation here. So I'm asking you. And you're going to need to answer. You don't have to answer me. Because I'm just one of you. I'm your brother. But you're going to have to answer the Lord one day. Whose will? He said, I come, O Lord, in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God, he said. 
I come to do your will. He says it here. He came as a servant. He's made in the likeness of man. And in verse 8 it says, Being found in fashion as a man, what did he do? He kept going down. He kept going. He's taking downward steps, downward steps. And now he goes down, it says here, in humility, voluntary humility, to become obedient even unto death. So up to what point do we have to obey God? Now, I've heard a lot of people say, well, I don't think God expects us to, and they start philosophizing about it. Let this mind be in you, the mind of the one who humbled himself. And you see, it's not the same for God to humble you as it is for you to humble yourself. Not the same. Voluntary humility comes from a word that means to put oneself under. You do it voluntarily. It's another thing to be cornered, to be chased down, to be cornered, to be threatened, to be pressured until you give in and do it just so they'll leave you alone so you can have some peace or because you can't find any other way out. That's not what the Lord Jesus did. In his mind was voluntary humility. Being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself, it says. And if the God-man humbled himself, you see, this is what Paul is driving at here. Why can't we humble ourselves? Why are we so afraid somebody's going to be higher than us or in front of us in the line or they're going to be seen and we're not or... It's not going to be fair or it's not going to be... Why are we so worried about all of that? Why can't we just humble ourselves? And the answer to the question is because we think we're better than them. Because we think we deserve it. We think that we got to do it this way because it's fair and it's right. And we, and we have our rights and we deserve it. And on and on it goes. He humbled himself. And he became obedient. That's what servants are. Servants are not bosses. Slaves are not bosses. Why don't we obey? Jesus did. When he was a young man, it says after he was teaching in the temple, when he went back, with his, his, when his parents found him at the age 12 in the temple, and, but when he went back, it says, and he returned with them and was subject to them. Twelve-year-old boy, God in a human body. Did he know more than they did? And his uh, adoptive father, Joseph, now going to teach him in the carpentry shop, right? Because sons in those days learned whatever the skill, the trade of their father was. Uh, they didn't go to guidance counselor at high school and decide, what do you want to be? I want to be this. I want to be that. If you were born to a carpenter, you knew what you were going to be. You were going to be a carpenter. Something had to do with that. You were born to a blacksmith, you're going to be a blacksmith. That was the way it worked. So it came to the day when his father said to him, Now, son, look at the wood here and look how the grain of the wood runs. Don't cut with the grain. Cut across the grain. Now, look at the teeth on the saw. And if he'd been like the young people today, he'd have been going, Please, Dad. Look, I made this. Let me tell you something about this tree, okay? You want to know the molecular composition of this tree? <laughs> you want to know how many trees were on the earth 
When I created it in the beginning, when, when God created the heavens and the earth, and when He made the plants, you want me to tell you how many trees I made? How many bushes I made? You want me to tell you how many fish were in the sea? How many birds were in the sky? He wasn't that way. He wasn't that way. Because humility doesn't mean you don't know anything. It doesn't mean you can't do anything. It's not about who's better. It's about the place where you choose to put yourself. See? And we have to tell the ladies this too. When the Lord says for a wife to obey her husband, to be subject to him, it's not talking about him being better than her. It's not macho. It's about God's order. And there's something beautiful about following God's order. Well, that's another subject. What servants are, they're obedient. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Here's a book, not very popular anymore, but I think you can still find it, written by Andrew Murray, M-U-R-R-A-Y. It's called The School of Obedience. Every man here should find that book. It's just a little book, a paperback. You find it, and if you don't have money to sell your shoes and buy it. <laughs> the School of Obedience by Andrew Murray. It's a classic of Christian literature. And while you're buying books by Andrew Murray, one more. It's simply titled Humility. Humility, a separate book by Andrew Murray. Same author. So he's obedient to the point of death and death on the cross, the most humiliating. The death of a criminal, the death of a social outcast, a pariah of society. In heaven, he gave the orders. On earth, he was the servant. In heaven, he gave life to all things. On the earth, he gave his life for all of us. He was obedient unto death. Never say, I can't obey the Lord because it costs too much. Because it costs more for Jesus to save you. It cost him more. So, you see, he went down because he loved us. This is what it's all about. Because he esteemed us. Because he wanted to save us. Not because we were worth it. Don't try to find human worth in the cross of Christ. The only worth that's there is assigned worth. We're worth something because he assigned it to us. He put, it, he put that value on us. Not because intrinsically it's ours. But because he decided to love us and to give himself for us. But that's not, it. That's not a statement of our worth. We were utterly worthless. We had nothing to offer God. And he took us into his kingdom. He went down and the Father took him up. And Paul is saying to the Philippians, and that's the way. You want to go up, the way is to go down. Humble yourselves, Peter says later in his epistle. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time or when the time is right. See, our job is to go down. God's job, if you want to call it that, 
We do the humbling of ourselves. And God will exalt us when the time is right. See, With Christ in glory we will be. And he shows us what he thought of Christ's humility. Of Christ's servanthood. Of Christ's obedience unto death. And the death of the cross. He shows us what he thought of it. Because it says, therefore. That means... Because of this that we have just read. Whenever you see that word, therefore, that's what it means. Therefore or wherefore, that's what it means. Taking into consideration or as a result of what we have just seen, we just discussed. For that reason, God also has highly exalted him. Men shouldn't exalt themselves. Let God do that. The Father exalted him, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He's been given the name, not a name, the name that is above every other name. He's already been given it. Allow me to say, although I know what we mean when we say this, but you can't really make Jesus Christ Lord. We say that, make Jesus Lord. You can't do that. (laughs) Because God has already done it. He is Lord. You can agree with it or disagree with it. Or I say you can like it or lump it. (laughs) But He is Lord. He is Lord. The Father has made him. He has highly exalted him. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about it. In the book of Revelation, it talks about it. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Angels and principalities and powers being subject to him. There's nobody higher in the universe than the Lord Jesus. But when he died on the cross, brother, there was nobody lower. That was the bottom rung on the ladder. That was it. But God exalted him. In heaven they know who he is. Read Revelation 4 and 5 and see if they're not worshiping him in heaven. See if they're not singing his praise. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. They're praising his name in heaven. They weren't doing that at the cross. Never mind. In time or in eternity, all things will work out the way God wants them to be. Just put yourself in the place that God says to be and let him worry about the results. Let him worry about how it works out. Believe me, God is big enough to exalt in the right time, to bless and reward at the right time a man who knows how to humble himself. The place is down, down. And if more of us were humble... Things would be different in our churches. And more of us would maybe be out on the mission field. More of us would be winning souls. If more of us were concerned about obeying God, even if we had to die for it. The Father exalted him. See, we humble ourselves now. Serve others. Obey God. And God exalts us later. That's his job. Verse 10 says, every knee will bow. Even the JW is going to bow their knee. Yep. <clears throat> his divinity, his majesty. Everyone, at the name of Jesus, every knee. That means 
Everybody that's gotten knees is going to bend them. Now, that's not talking about. Well, what about the people that are amputees? It's just saying, that's a way of saying every human. That's a figure of speech in the Bible where they use a part of a person to refer to the whole person. For example, when a ship goes down at sea, we say uh, the Titanic went down and 1,500 souls were lost. Well, they lost their toes and their heads and everything else, not just their souls. But we use a part to represent the whole, see. And so when they say knee, what they're saying is that's the way of saying everybody is going to bow down to him. Everybody is going to. In heaven, all the angels, all the redeemed in heaven, with one great movement and rustling of wings, will bow their knees. And on the earth, with one great movement, all over the planet, every person on the face of this earth at that time will bow their knee. And under the earth, in the regions of the doom to which he refers, the regions of the lost, dead, and even the devil himself will bow his knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is patient. He can wait until that moment. But it's coming. Every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It doesn't say every tongue shall confess that God is love. All right, now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. I don't want anybody out here suspecting that Carl doesn't believe in the love of God or doesn't appreciate the love of God. Let me dispel with that ghost right now. But what I'm trying to show you is that the Scripture emphasizes his lordship and his authority. That's what they're going to confess. When Isaiah saw him high and lifted up in his train, filled the temple, his glory filled the temple, what were those angels crying? They weren't saying love, 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 good, 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 kind, 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 merciful, 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 although all those things are true, and I am so glad they are. They said holy. And here they say Jesus Christ is And he has so many things we could fill in the blank there, couldn't we? They say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Okay, if he's my Lord and this is the mind that's in him, how am I supposed to live? How am I supposed to live? That's the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, if our great God and Lord could humble himself and do what he did here, why can't we humble ourselves and get along with one another? Why can't we serve one another? How dare we say that we are His followers if we are not willing to humble ourselves? How dare we say we are following the humble, obedient unto death Christ when we think our own comfort, our own personal goals, whatever they might be, are more important than the present spiritual condition of the world and the church around us? God is looking for men the mind of Christ. Amen. Anybody going to take him up on it today? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the example of the Lord Jesus. Until we get to heaven, we will never really know. Until we see him in his glory, and maybe never, 
really understand how great the sacrifice was made for us. We come to it time after time, trying to find the bottom, and we cannot find it. It is so deep, so profound, what he has done for us. Sunday after Sunday at the Lord's Supper, we sit in wonder. We look at the emblems and we think about what he did for us. How he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All the kindness, all the love, all the benefit that we have received because Christ humbled himself. We thank you for his willing sacrifice. Teach us this path of humility and willing sacrifice. Teach us to think about one another as Christ thought about us. Teach us to think about those multitudes in the world around us the way Christ thought. And teach us to think As C.T. Studd once said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.